Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. The Pew Bible is page 684. That's 684. We come to praise and worship God this morning, and now we hear from him through his word as well. This is Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. May God add his blessing to this word. Well, this should be easy this morning. Now, here is a light start to a heavy, serious subject that's going to serve to introduce our topic for this morning. So watch this video. It's entitled, Thoughts Inside Your Head. I am the voice inside of your head. And so am I. What are you doing? Well, we're going to the beach this weekend, and there are going to be some foxy ladies there for show. (laughs) Right, and as Christ followers... We are committed to being pure in thought, mind, and the things that we see and hear. Oh, come on. Going to be surrounded by hotness. Nothing wrong with us doing a little bit of window shopping. Hmm? You know, Jesus said if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Look, there you go again, making a big deal out of nothing. Look, the way I see it is if the butcher puts lamb chops out on display, I'm going to check out the quality of the cut, if you know what I mean. Lamb chops. And who said anything about adultery? Although it's not a bad idea. See, he would have you indulge your every thought, every fantasy, until your mind is so polluted that it has room for nothing else, especially God's word. Look, there is nothing wrong with our thoughts. As long as we keep them to ourselves and nobody knows what's going on up there, it's not a big deal. I have a whole album full of our thoughts right here. And let me tell you, my friend, there are some doozies in here. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Remember this one? (laughs) That image stayed with us for a very long time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was the end of innocence. Mm. See, this is what I'm talking about with you. You see what you're doing? It's called indulgence. All you're doing is taking our our past thoughts and throwing them in our face and and dredging up sinful thoughts and images from our mind and trying to make us feel guilty and shame us, all the while ignoring the spirit of purity and self-control. I'm sorry, what? Well, uh, cream and three splenda. Thank you. (laughs) God wants us to have the mind of Christ because 
How you think determines how you act. So it's up to you. Are you going to be self-disciplined in your thoughts? Or, why hello there. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The primary organ in our battle with lust is the mind. We come to a tough passage of Scripture this morning. Perhaps next to the sermon title on your bulletin should be a rating such as PG-13. Oh, you're going to squirm a little bit this morning, perhaps for more reason than one. But I am afraid that many Christian homes and evangelical churches have adopted a don't ask, don't tell, don't talk about sex attitude. Can we afford to be silent in such a sex-obsessed culture? with sexting happening in middle schools? Can we be silent when each year there are nearly 15,000 sexual references to TV on TV alone? Can we be silent when the so-called family hour of primetime television between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. contains more than eight sexual incidents per hour? We can come this morning to worship to pray, to sing, to hear a sermon, to set our minds on things above, and then go home, watch a football game, and be exposed to dozens of commercials and ads for upcoming shows that feature sex. Can we be silent? Now, if your takeaway this morning is to throw away your television, then I'm afraid you have missed the main points. As is the case with the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is most concerned about cultivating the right kind of heart and dealing with inner righteousness. For this morning, the goal is to develop inner character that is not dominated by sexual desire. Jesus' intent for us is to cultivate a pure heart that refuses to lust. His intent is for us to cultivate a pure heart that refuses to lust. Is it possible to remain unaffected as we live in such a sex-crazed culture? Well, as Martin Luther put it, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. (laughs) How do we embrace Jesus' value of purity in a culture that says everyone is free to do and have as much as they want as long as it's consensual? How do we live faithfully in the sexually confused culture. Back a couple of years ago, when we dropped off our daughter for her one trimester stay at a college in Rhode Island, at orientation, the administrators made a big deal about date rape and, and about um, not walking around on campus alone at night, etc., etc. And then following the orientation, we helped our daughter settle in her room in her dorm with three other female students directly across from her room, same building, same floor, was a group of three guys settling in their room. And I thought, might this be a mixed message? 
I mean, take every precaution to protect from rape, but let's have co-ed dorms. And I wondered, what brilliant faculty member with his Ph.D. came up with that plan? Oh, we can so compartmentalize, can't we? It is that compartmentalization that has many believers sitting in the pews of Bible-believing churches on Sunday morning who are having affairs over their heads in pornography and dying inside with shame and feeling defeated in their struggle with lust. No, we cannot be silent. And Jesus was not silent on this issue. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Now I remind you, keep thinking inner righteousness, not merely external behaviors. Keep thinking inner righteousness, not merely external behaviors, as we make our way through this passage this morning. Now there are three questions that I want to answer this morning. The first one is, what about desire? Second one is, how do we deal successfully with lust? And thirdly, what does divorce have to do with the subject? And I want to address the third question first. We kind of need to get this on the table so we can move on to the other matters at hand here this morning. What does divorce have to do with this subject? In other words, why does Jesus touch on divorce as he speaks of lust and adultery? Well, follow along as I read the end of that passage that was read. Matthew 5, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now when Jesus here says, it has been said, he is speaking of the rabbis and scribes who held that divorce was permissible on any grounds as long as the wife is given a certificate of dismissal. It was based on their interpretation or misinterpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, my purpose this morning is not to provide an exhaustive study on divorce and remarriage. But the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that the scribes, that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees began to misinterpret... It mentions that if a wife becomes displeasing to her husband because of some indecency in her life, which was anything short of adultery, he was to give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus comments on this section of Scripture, Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew chapter 19. And he adds that the certificate of divorce was permitted. Why? Because of the hardness of men's hearts. God's purpose, it seems, in addressing this issue back in Deuteronomy was not to provide an excuse for a divorce or, or command divorce or even condone divorce, but to show the potential evil of it. The whole purpose of the certificate of divorce that God required was for the woman's protection. It protected her reputation from slander and provided proof of her legal freedom. And this permission on on God's part was taken too far by the teachers of the law who turned it into a legal right. And so they went as far as to say, if you find something distasteful about your wife, I mean, it could be anything. She burned your your toast in the morning. She, She missed a spot on the pan. Anything. You could divorce her, is what they said. 
Jesus says, to turn your wife loose, which is the meaning of divorce here, and she remarries, you have caused her to commit adultery, and by implication, the husband is guilty of it also. Now, the only exception Jesus says is marital unfaithfulness, which is any illicit sexual act. And when that occurs, divorce is permitted, and I believe it also permits remarriage. Well, we may have to agree to disagree on that, but let's keep moving forward on this. What does divorce here have to do with the subject that Jesus is talking about? Well, it all points to the sanctity of marriage. As the sixth commandment, do not murder, helped, held up the sanctity of life, it's the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, that holds up the union of one man and one woman. And we ought to do, here as a church, we ought to do all that we can to strengthen marriages in our church and to remove anything that harms marriages today. Now, on this whole subject of divorce, it's a tricky subject indeed. And if you're divorced here this morning and you feel as though you carry this big D on your chest, remember, it can also, that D can also stand for do-over, Okay? Keep going at it. It's not the end of your story. There are many more chapters to be written. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law would pride themselves on the fact that they didn't commit adultery, that they weren't guilty of fornication. And Jesus turns this on its head and he says, divorcing your wife for any reason other than unfaithfulness on her part is equivalent to committing adultery. That's how it fits into the subject this morning. If that didn't stir up enough trouble, Jesus equates lust with committing adultery. And so before we get too smug about never committing adultery or never committing divorce, we come to this next section, this previous section here in Matthew 5. We ask the question, what about desire? What about desire? Go with me back to verse 27 and 28. Verse 27 and 28 says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, as was noted last week in looking at anger, to conclude that since you looked in lust, you might as well commit adultery is nonsense, and it's to fall into the trap from the pit of hell. Lust is spiritually equivalent, but not identical to adultery. Jesus here is challenging their faulty thinking about true righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees figured as long as they didn't commit the act of adultery, they were righteous. Jesus shocks them by saying lust is just as sinful in God's way of thinking as the act of adultery. So, for any of us, before we throw stones at those who have been unfaithful in their marriage, pause Stop and take a look at the lust in our own heart. Now the word for lust here is epithemia. It means more than ordinary attraction. Instead, intentionally objectifying another person for one's own gratification. We need to make a distinction between attraction and objectification. Attraction values the whole person. Lust is fixed on mere body parts, to put it bluntly. To lust after another person 
is to say that fulfilling my desire is more important than fulfilling my commitment and that all I really care about is me. It isn't the first look as much as the second look. The word looks here in this verse is the idea of continuously looking in order to satisfy lustful desires in our hearts. It is to carry around with us the images that are degrading of another's value and the satisfying of our own evil desire. Two Buddhist monks were walking just after a heavy rainstorm. And they came to a swollen stream. A beautiful young Japanese woman in a kimono stood there wanting to cross to the other side, but she was afraid of the currents. One of the monks said to her, Can I help you? Well, I I need to cross this stream, the woman replied, but I'm afraid to do so. The monk picked her up, put her on his shoulder, carried her through the swirling waters, and put her down on the other side. And he and his companion then went off to the monastery. That night his companion said to him, you know, I have a bone to pick with you. As Buddhist monks, we have taken vows not to look on woman, much less touch her body. Back there by the river, you did both. My brother answered the other monk, I put that woman down on the other side of the river. You're still carrying her in your mind. (laughs) Good answer. What images are you choosing to carry around? How are you nursing a love of lust? Do you long to be free to see others in a new way? To see others not as objects, but as people whom God loves. Value purity. Think as Jesus thinks, and don't just call it a male thing. Call it adultery in the heart. Men's retreat, we're going to deal with the subject of purity in the heart and guarding the heart. So no matter where you are in that spectrum, I encourage you to sign up and come as we flesh out this subject a little bit more. But I ask the question, is it just a male problem? I mean, Jesus does speak directly to men here. There's no escaping that. But is there a word here for women, for young ladies? Yes, there is, probably on several fronts. I'm going to just address two. The first area of concern is the matter of modest dress. We've got to talk about that just a little bit here. Now again, we must take a balanced approach. We must avoid being legalistic on this to impose on others, others one's own standard and mother measures, measure others' spirituality by that standard. We need to be careful of that. Don't go too far there. Say, this is my standard before God, and if you don't carry that standard out, I measure your spirituality by that. That's wrong. See, it isn't to dress as I dress approach. We, we live in the extremes on this. We figure the answer to modesty is uniformity and to ignore one's sexuality. Now, having said that, to dress and expose yourself with a desire to be lusted after, or, ladies, making it more difficult for the man to make the right choice is encouraging men to objectify you. And quite frankly, men need very little help in that area. (laughs) A man was shopping with his wife when a lovely young lady, scantily dressed, strolled by. 
The man's eyes followed her, and without looking up from the item the wife was examining, she asked her husband, was it worth the trouble you are in? (laughs) Probably not. Modest dress. Secondly, second area of concern as it relates to women, to young ladies, since the word lust means to objectify a body, can we then by extension say it also could include objectifying a persona? Hear me on this. If a married woman is fantasizing about the man of her dreams, who's not her husband, or the man she reads about in a romance novel, or thinks about in some chick flick, or that someone who will meet her emotional needs, is that not also considered lust in a different but equally as dangerous sense? I say yes. It's a problem. See, countercultural kingdom living is valuing and respecting others. Whole person. See them as God sees them. And so men, women, young, old, let's cultivate a heart of purity that refuses to lust or to encourage others to lust after you. Let's get a handle on our desires. What about desire? What about desire? Well, the the culture answers that question, what about desire, by erroneously assuming that all sexual desire is good. If it feels good, you do it. That's their answer to that question, what about desire? Now, the Christian community has answered that question, what about desire, with their silence and paranoid external rules that give the impression that all sexual desire is evil. We need to have a balanced view of sexuality. God created sex. God protects sex by regulating sex, not because he wants to ruin our lives, but to bless us with a good and beautiful life. He does. And sexuality has the power to destroy life or enhance it. See, it isn't about getting rid of desire. I hope you hear that this morning almost more than anything else. It isn't about getting rid of desire. What is that all-familiar quote? It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yes, he nailed it. See, it isn't about getting rid of desire. Christian community at times has communicated that by its silence. It's evil. No, it's not evil. Don't get rid of desire. Don't kill the desire. It's about giving ourselves to something more powerful. It isn't about closing our eyes as we walk about, but seeing others as valuable. See, the solution to sexual impurity is not external. More willpower isn't merely the answer. Tearful prayers won't necessarily cut it. Practicing some ritual or saying out loud some scripted prayers won't guarantee success. Promises, vows, 
resolutions are no match for a heart that secretly cherishes sin and nurses lust. That's not the answer. If we are to cultivate a pure heart that refuses to lust, we must learn how to deal successfully with it. And that's our last question. How do we deal successfully with lust? And by extension, really, any sinful area in our life, any problem area in our life, it carries out to this as well. Jesus goes on to speak of the way we're to deal with lust in our hearts in verses 29 through 30. Follow along as I read verse 29. Now, I'm really curious as to what you're going to discuss over lunch today. <laughs> Have fun. Kids are going to ask some questions, perhaps. What did he mean when he said? Well, here we go. It doesn't get any easier here. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What in the world is Jesus saying here? Now, quite interestingly, that in the context of Jesus speaking to inner righteousness, he gives two examples of external measures we should take in dealing with lust. He goes after here, he goes after the commonly held belief that sin resides in the offending part of the body. And I believe in some cultures that they they still literally cut off the hand of a thief. I've heard that. Jesus is not advocating we do that. Jesus is not suggesting we start cutting off body parts and roll into heaven as a bloody stump, as Dallas Willard would say. You see, since it's a matter of the heart, to gouge out our eye, our right eye, speaking to our best eye, could not address the inner issue. That I that led me to lust after another person isn't the real problem at all. I mean, would getting rid of one eye protect someone from lust? And why does Jesus speak of the right hand in this topic of lust? Well, likely, it's because to take someone else's wife would be the same as stealing her. And so to physically cut off the hand obviously would not solve the problem of adultery. What's Jesus' point? These are figures of speech to show the importance of acting decisively and radically when it comes to dealing with sexual sin. Let me say that again. They're figures of speech here to show the importance of acting decisively and radically when it comes to dealing with sexual sin. In other words, in other words, we should be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even something we cherish deeply, to protect our purity. Is there anything so valuable worth keeping at the expense of righteousness before our Savior? That's what he's saying. Now, this is a tricky thing. This is a tricky thing. Because what we do with this often as we begin, as we speak of boundaries and dealing radically with things in our lives, we begin to put on the label and cry legalism. Now, this is a tricky thing. It is not legalism to place boundaries in our lives. It's not. It's not. 
If going to R-rated movies makes me susceptible to sin, then I should avoid that. It would be legalism if I believe that I am righteous because I avoid going to R-rated movies. It would be legalistic if I impose on you the same standard and then measure your spirituality by whether or not you go to R-rated movies. That's legalism. That's where we get into trouble. We get all this messed up in our heads. We either label any discipline or certain activity legalism and so put ourselves in temptation's way in the name of freedom, craziness, or we measure others' spirituality by what we have decided before God for ourselves. Watch the extremes there. The point of all of this and what Jesus is saying here, I believe, is to have boundaries to protect your sexual integrity. And young people, don't wait until you're in the heat of the moment to finally say, I'm going to set up some boundaries. That's like a soldier going into battle hoping he doesn't get shot at too much. You're in trouble. Boundaries have to be back here, not in the heat of the moment. That's for all of us. So if there's some baits that traps you when you touch it, get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Place fences around your purity. Don't go near it. Don't expect we can get away with something and playing around with it. As Proverbs 6, 27 states plainly, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? You play with the fire of lust, I guarantee you, you will get burned. So the question is, in what way have you been playing with fire, hoping not to get burned? Is there something that needs to be nipped in the bud? It has been said, you can't bargain with lust and come out a winner. You can't. And this applies to not only lust, but to any troubled spots in our lives. It applies to that besetting sin that keeps tripping you up. It applies to that area in your life that, that strangles the life out of you. It applies to that secret sin or one of those so-called acceptable sins in the church or the sin that keeps screaming, feed me. We need boundaries. We need, we need to have fences. We need to get rid of it, not play around with it. And so again, it begs the question, is it time to deal decisively and radically with a particular sin in your life? You've been playing with it way too long. And God's calling you to deal radically with it. Maybe you've already blown it. It's not too late. You can end your relationship to sin at any point in the sequence. God wants to put the pieces of your brokenness back together again and restore you. So you can be useful for him. How will you go about setting your mind on things above this week? Have you been spending time thinking about who you are and desiring him? Have you been a little disconnected from the Lord lately? How's your thought life? Remember the little vignette at the beginning of the sermon? There's a conflict that's going on inside of us and going on inside of our minds. There are conflicting thoughts. The question is, which one have you been feeding the most? There's an allegorical story about a ghost of a man consumed by lust. And the lust is depicted as a red lizard that sits on his shoulder and whispers seductively in his ear. 
When the man is bothered by this lizard on his shoulder, an angel volunteers to destroy it for him. But the man's conflicted because he wants to hold on to his lust, but he wants the lizard gone. What he's afraid of is that death of his lust will be the death of him. And he offers all these excuses to the angel because he wants to keep the lizard, yet he doesn't want to keep the lizard. After much discussion, the man finally lets the angel kill the lizard. And the angel grabs the lizard. He he breaks its neck and he hurls it to the ground. And now that the spell of lust is broken, the man who once was ghostly is wonderfully remade into a real and solid person. And what is really cool is that instead of dying, this lizard is changed into a spectacular stallion. With great tears of joy and appreciation, the man gets on the horse and he rides off into the, into the heavens. Who's going to truly enjoy freedom in the area of lust? Who is it that really finds life? Instead of giving into desires that are off limits, we begin to experience the fullness and joy of pure desire that finds that God is up to something more profound and satisfying than what we've been satisfied with as half-hearted creatures. And to kill that sin, whatever it is, to kill that lust, to kill that craving, doesn't destroy us. No, we find a new life that we never imagined. As has been said, the love God offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Would living water somehow quench thirst? That was the gamble of faith, he says. And really, it's no gamble at all. You cannot lose when you turn to God. Be properly connected to our Savior and His kingdom because only He can fill that thirst. Only He. What's the alternative? There's an old movie which shows some shipwrecked men drifting aimlessly on the ocean in a lifeboat. As the days pass under the scorching sun, their rations of food and fresh water give out, and the men grow deliriously thirsty. One night, while the others are asleep, one man ignores all previous warnings, and he gulps down some salt water, and he quickly dies. See, ocean water contains seven times more salt than the human body can safely ingest. Drinking it, a person dehydrates because the kidneys demand extra water to flush the overload of salt. And so the more salt water someone drinks, the thirstier he gets. He actually dies of thirst. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a picture of lust. It is to thirst and then gulp down some salt water to satisfy that thirst. And when we look for that sexual high to meet that need or to fantasize over some persona of the man of our dreams to satisfy my thirst, we only gulp salt water. We only get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier to the place of a death-like existence. Come to the living water. Be properly connected to our Savior and seek His kingdom, for it is there that the thirst is satisfied only in Him. It is to believe that living for things above is to be part of something absolutely thrilling and exciting. Don't kill desire. Plug it into the Lord. It's an exciting road. It's a new adventure. It's new life.
It's where our thirst is really satisfied. Is it not that our desires are far too weak? That we indeed are far too easily pleased. Let's quit gulping down salt water and encouraging that sin to continue and instead come to Jesus with our thirst. Let's pray. Lord, you invite us, all who are thirsty, to come to you, to find in you satisfaction. Let's not kill desire. Let's plug that desire in to what it is that you have for us that is profound and deep and satisfying and fulfilling, that is better than anything this world can offer us. Ah, we've bought a lot of lies. We've embraced a lot of myths. And we're confused at best. We live a death-like existence at worst. So help us, Lord, to exchange the myths for truth. Help us to believe what you say here in your word. And to find that as we quit playing around with lust or any other sin we're feeding, that that is where we find new life, not death. May we really believe that. May we strive to live pure and holy lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.